This is the Obscurity to Authority Podcast with your host, Darren Cabral. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Obscurity to Authority Podcast, where I interview top entrepreneurs, influencers, business owners, and explore their path from obscurity to authority. Usually, that means figuring out how they got into business, built their business, built their brand, and have become the success that they are now. The goal of this podcast and doing these interviews is to help you kind of identify some of the patterns of their success, some of the strategies they've used, so you can implement them in your life, in your business, and achieve a similar result. So without further ado, let's jump over to our guest today, which is Chad King, the owner of Titan Capital Group. So Chad, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I can't wait to chat. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Darren. Awesome, buddy. So everyone tuning in, we are here today with Chad King. He is the owner of Titan Capital Group. I know you have a few other things going on as well. So why don't I just hand it off to you to introduce yourself and tell everyone what you got going on. Yeah, so uh, right now we're mainly focused on buying commercial real estate. Um, we own and operate uh, apartments uh, across five different states. We have some other facets of commercial real estate in our portfolio as well. Um, humble beginnings out of college, sold some copiers door to door is how I got my start in the sales racket and then uh, got into fixing and flipping uh, houses. And then that was sort of the trajectory uh, getting into real estate and then ultimately uh, stacking up some commercial real estate. And then, um, yeah, I dabble in some, some other businesses. We like cryptocurrencies and the stock market and some other things as well for some active income, but definitely commercial real estate is the main thing right now. That's awesome, man. So let's just wheel it all the way back to the beginning. So is real estate the first business you've ever got into or did you start somewhere else and when was that? Uh, it, real estate is the first business that I ever started, you know, as an entrepreneur. Um, but you know, my journey kind of changed a lot during that first you know year or two, like, because as an entrepreneur, you, you try something, you fail, you call an audible, you try it, you fail, you call an audible. So I kind of started like a lot of little schemes and other businesses all under the real estate umbrella. Cause there's so many ways to skin a cat. Um, but before that, I just out of college sold copiers door to door for Xerox. And then from there jumped in uh, to entrepreneurship and got into real estate. Okay. That's awesome. So you started off in the sales area, which obviously helps. We've seen a lot of successful entrepreneurs come from a sales background. Um, why do you think that is? How did sales help you kind of in this entrepreneurial endeavor? Um, well, I think it teaches you a little bit about how to deal with failure, rejection. Um, it teaches you interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence and how to deal with people. Uh, teaches you resilience, resourcefulness, and um, just to get back up one more time than you fall. And I think that's sort of the essence of as entrepreneurship is just, just keep pushing forward. Yeah, that's awesome, man. So did you know, I mean, I know you started in the sales job, but taking it right from the beginning, like, did you know you always wanted to at some point do your own thing or start your own business? Like, was this in the family? Were you inspired by somebody? Like, at what point did you figure out, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, I really want to start something? Hmm. That's a good question. So, I mean, I had always like had a very strong interest in money. Um, I got a degree in finance, which, you know, doesn't really teach anything really about money, but uh, I had always kind of that, that topic. I saw that the people who had money had the control, the people who had money had the power. So I was always studying that, that topic and wealth and wealth creation, wealth preservation, and how these people, you know, amass, you know, massive amounts of wealth. So through those studies, like ultimately just found this, just found it very, very intriguing and got into you know every role that I took. I wanted to be in a position where I could, could kind of control my own destiny and write my own checks, which is why you go to a commission, a heavy commission job, and then you know in entrepreneurship you eat what you kill. 
So real estate had always been that common theme that I saw when I was kind of studying the successful people. I kept seeing like most of their wealth was in real estate. So I was like, there's something to this, man. Every single person I look at, they got what they got real estate. They had their owning, they got holding. So I just kept seeing it and it just, you know, it just kept going in my head. I read the books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, caught that bug, all that stuff I was doing while I was selling copiers and trying to make money. And then, um, you know, I had a, a path laid out for me, sort of like that, you know, the 401k match corporate ladder was kind of laid out at Xerox and it just kind of irked me. Something was telling me, you know, go the other direction. So I just, you know, kind of cold turkey uh, jumped in, but I had always had that bug and was always studying the game and studying the people that had uh, amassed the wealth in, in real estate. Um, and then it was just a matter of time before I got in. That's awesome. That's interesting because my first, the first book I ever read was also, not the first book I ever read, the first business book I ever read that really got me into that frame of thinking was also Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Um, because it really, it really outlined that difference between, you know, employee versus business owner and investor. Um, and even to this day, it's kind of this thing in the back of my mind because I've, I've gone a similar path. I started sales as well. I got into business from there. And as of late, I've gotten into real estate investing. Like my primary company is still a digital marketing agency. That's what I do day to day. But all the profits from that, all the money we make there ends up in the real estate side. Um, we have a family real estate company that multiple of us are involved in and that's where all the money goes. And so it's like, I'm even still trying to make that, that switch in Robert Kiyosaki's, uh, was it the cash flow quadrant, right? Going around yeah. those squares and trying to make it to the investor side. So obviously you saw the same pattern um, and you decided you'd kind of take that leap. So let's talk about that first jump when you thought, okay, I'm going to get into business for myself. I'm going to do this. This is the real deal. This is what I want to do. Let's talk about that and go as in depth as you want, but I want to hear how you started that, how this happened and how you created this company. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you got to build the plane on the way down. I think a lot of people are looking for the, not only, the blueprint is out there, right? And you should, if you're an entrepreneur and you're kind of looking, I would definitely recommend hiring a coach or a mentor that's done exactly what you want to do and take the blueprint and go and implement it because that's the path of least resistance. And it's going to accelerate your growth that much faster because you can pay them to learn from all of their mistakes rather than having to make them yourself. Um, but to answer your question, you know, most people are wanting the path to kind of clear before they walk, start walking down it. And that's just not how it works. So in my, in my experience, you know, I, I kind of had to commit first, figure it out later mentality, uh, which works, you know, in your early twenties, when you don't have a lot of crazy overhead, the kids and everything like that, you can kind of take those chances. So if you are young, you know, and you're a young entrepreneur, I recommend take some risks, take some chances now. Um, so I, I just, I jumped in full time. And then ultimately, like I mentioned earlier, I had to kind of figure out where I wanted to be within the real estate umbrella because there's so many different ways to skin a cat. So like I got my real estate license and I tried to be like a commercial agent. I started like this aerial photography company thinking I was going to break into commercial real estate that way. And then ultimately found a niche wholesaling houses where you could put something under contract and then sell that contract for a fee without having to pay any money because I didn't have any money to buy the house. So found that niche in wholesaling houses and then scaled and grew that business for a couple of years, made a good amount of active income. And then like you took all that active income from wholesaling and flipping houses and then started buying the commercial real estate. But, you know, I, you can always connect the dots looking back, you know, and I always knew I wanted to own apartments, but when you're in it, you, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You just have to make the next best decision at a time, like one good decision at a time. And just with the information you have, just make the next right decision. Um, and sometimes you're going to make the wrong one, but 
then you just make the next best decision after that, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. It's funny. Like, it's so weird because sometimes I talk to our guests and we have such a weird like alignment, like where I'll have a lot of the same stories that I've been through, you know, our guests have been through. And you just mentioned you had an aerial photography company. That was also my first business out of the sales job. It yeah. was called Toronto Skycam and we used to do the same thing. And my, my goal was like, I did a lot of real estate because I'm like, I want to get in the real estate world. It was always fascinating. I thought this would be a way to do it. I did the exact same freaking thing, which is crazy. That's my first note. Uh, but the second note is when you go into real estate, I mean, you mentioned wholesaling, which is really smart. Let's expand on wholesaling a little bit because I obviously know what it is and how it works. But I think a lot of people that are listening to this that haven't gone to real estate yet don't really realize that wholesaling is an opportunity because a lot of them hear real estate and they say, I don't have the money. Like I can't do real estate. I have no money. Obviously there's ways around that. Wholesaling mm -hmm. is one of them. Can you just explain a little bit more about wholesaling and what you did with it when you started out? Yeah. So wholesaling is a business model where, um, you know, you, you don't have, you don't need the money to close on the property. If you have the ability to find distress off market deals and it can, it doesn't necessarily mean the property has to be in distress. A lot of times it's the actual seller or the homeowner that's in distress so that they're in a distressed situation. So you, you go to them and you present them with an offer to purchase their property and you tie it up on a contract uh, with a due diligence period. And then during that due diligence period, you have time to then sell that contract to a buyer who's actually going to come in and fund the deal, or they're going to you know rent it out or flip it. And they come in and fund the deal and you make the spread in between. So your ability to make you know, massive amounts of what's called wholesale fees or the what's what's in between the A to B contract and the fee between the B to C contract, B to C being with the buyer, A to B being with the original homeowner, you can control that fee by your ability to negotiate on the front end. So if you're good at emotional intelligence, you're a people person, you understand how to creatively solve problems, which I think is the biggest thing that salespeople do is solve problems. So if you can do that on the front end very well um, and you're likable, knowable, and trustable, um, then, you know, you can make pretty significant fees on these deals. And then, cause the buyer is going to pay whatever the buyer is going to pay as long as the deal makes sense to them. So if they're willing to pay 200, it doesn't matter if you get it at 180 or 150, they're still willing to pay 200. So it's whatever you can negotiate on the front end. And then there's, you know, marketing channels and things that you can do to find off market properties. It's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty competitive space. It's a little saturated right now because the barrier to entry is very, very low. Um, but you know, if you're consistent with the marketing, you're persistent in your marketplace and the, the areas that you've chosen, you can get good deals. And, um, and then you just got to have someone who can, you know, sit on a couch and either play Dr. Phil or Dave Ramsey and lock something up with these sellers. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I love that method because you can also, as you build your, your, your cash pile through those deals and those fees that can also evolve into a little bit of a flipping business, which is a bit of a step up where you might say, I got a great property. I don't want to wholesale it. I'm going to actually put the work in and get it on market. If there's, if there's room there, right. Um, obviously you need a little more capital to do that, or you need some sort of like joint venture partner or private letter that's going to fund it, but you could level that up. Like once you get that deal volume, you might choose to keep one or keep two, maybe it's even a buy and hold depending on the property. So it kind of gives you uh, it kind of gives you options. And I know people hear this all the time and they say, especially where I live, cause I'm in, uh, I'm in Toronto, Canada. So we're in a super competitive real estate market where like 600 square foot condos downtown are going for a million dollars plus. And people will say, you know, you can't do that here. You can't wholesale in Canada. You can't wholesale in Toronto. We hear that everywhere. And I'm sure you hear it in the U.S. when you get to markets like New York or California, they say you can't wholesale. It's not true. Yeah. There's distressed people. That's why, like you said that, you said people, not properties. So distressed situations, not properties. There's distressed people everywhere. Like in the real estate business that we operate, there's a lot of flipping going on. We do what you said, which is a big marketing engine. We built a huge engine with Google ads, Facebook ads, radio, mailers. We got a $13 million off market deal, which was a mansion, a beautiful mansion just outside of Toronto. 
Um, but the very interesting story behind the seller, she was super distressed in a really bad situation, no really other way out and was going to lose her house in five days if she didn't find a way out of it. And so that always happens. Like if you're marketing enough, I guess what you're saying, Chad is like, you'll find those deals. You'll find those people no matter what. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. If you stay consistent with it, most people yeah. are, you know, they'll, they'll pull a list and do a campaign and they won't get a deal. And they're like, ah, oh, this doesn't work. I mean, you know, it takes, sometimes it takes 10 or 12 touches from these people to see your name, your company name before they feel comfortable enough to call you to, you know, buy their property. So. And um, so how, how did you overcome that? Like when you were getting it, obviously you didn't have maybe a name in the industry yet. You were just starting out. How did you kind of overcome that barrier and really get that deal flow coming in and get those people to trust you? Sales skills. And that's from all the past work. That was from, you know, I don't want to say it was all from Xerox because I did a lot of self-education, but Xerox had a phenomenal sales training program. And then I read, you know, I was reading sales books all the time. So becoming a master of interpersonal communication, uh, becoming a, a, I don't want to call it a master, but become really good at emotional intelligence and um, being able to ask great questions, being able, being able to actively listen, practice tactical empathy and put yourself in their perspective and, and solve their problem and have them come up with a solution on their own. Like, you know, I think one of the greatest things a salesperson can do is, is have somebody come up with an idea that is the salesperson's idea, but they get, they think that it's their idea because you've just asked so many guiding questions and you've asked them in the right order with the right tonality that you've come up with the idea, but it was my intention that you would come up with that idea at the beginning of the conversation. So when I would walk up to a house, I, I knew like I, I'm going to buy this house and I would get the seller to want to sell me the house. Right. And that was my goal. But at the end of the conversation, they're like, I want to sell, you know, I want to sell him this house. So I don't know. It was just, I think that's where if I'm, if I'm saying like what separated, what I believe separated myself from the competition and being able to stand out when, you know, they have 10 other investors coming out to the house and you're the one that gets the deal. Um, you got to be good with people, you know, and everybody's got to, everybody should learn sales because everybody's a salesperson. Everything you want is a commission. So you, you got to learn basic negotiations and basic sales and interpersonal communications to be effective in any industry, um, selling any products. Totally agree, man. That's awesome. And so let, let's move through your journey now coming all the way up a little further and we're going to kind of work our way to where you are now, but so you're, you're wholesaling, you're moving, obviously very successful. You built trust, you got your deal flow going, but in the back of your mind, you still know you want to get into apartments at some point. So what did that transition start to look like? How did you make that transition from wholesaling to commercial? Uh, the same way I made the transition from uh, corporate world to single family, which is just kind of to, to jump in. Um, you know, I had been networking in the space and the, the good part was I was already in the real estate bubble. So I was kind of making connections with people. I was building partnerships. You know, one thing I'll say right out of the gate is if you want to be successful and scale uh, significantly in real estate, you need partners. You need good partners. You're not going to do everything yourself. You're not going to wear all the hats. There are so many things to do in there are so many things to do in single family and commercial with regards to transactions, deal sourcing, underwriting, analysis, uh, you know, disposition. There's so many things to do that if you try and do it all, you will be your own bottleneck. And I've been that in my business and to some extent still am, uh, but your ability to, to partner up and delegate is going to be a, a critical piece to your success. So that was, you know, a big part for me was understanding that, you know, 50% of a hundred unit deal is a lot better than 0% of a 500 unit deal. Like, you know, be, be willing to partner up with people that have core values that align uh, with yours. I think that's a critical piece of the puzzle. And, um, 
So that was where I, that was kind of where I made the transition was understanding that number one, you know, partners will help you scale and grow. Number two, I think the big piece for me was understanding that you can buy these apartment complexes with other people's money um, and that your fiduciary responsibility now to your investors and everybody wants to be in this space. So if you have the ability to find good deals, a lot of time the funding, the funding will come right behind it because there's money flocking to this asset class. It's one of the most secure asset classes. I'm talking about commercial real estate. And I think utilizing other people's money investors to purchase bigger deals and more real estate allows you to, to scale or grow. So that was kind of what clicked for me. And then, you know, when you do north of 150 fix and flip wholesale deals in a year, and you look at you look at your end of the year and you're like, all right, we made a good chunk of change, but hell, I got to go out and do it again. Um, ultimately, you know, you're, you haven't become an investor. You've just created another job for yourself. So you, we were talking about the cash flow quadrant. You know, you're not an investor if you're flipping houses. Like you've just created a high paying job. Um, and I think some people uh, maybe misinterpret that an investor is a fix and flipper. Is like, no, you're just you're just making a lot of money on a very intense high paying job. A hundred percent. And I think that's an important distinction to make. And that is a problem with wholesaling and with flipping is, yeah, you know, the year ends and you're back to square one. Right. And so you're not really accumulating anything. I mean, there are ways, there are ways like any business, like if you approach it with an investor mindset, like you build a whole team, a great operations oh, yeah. manager, and you're just allocating chunks of money and that team's operating, those deals are flowing, then you've become an investor. Great. You own an asset that creates revenue. But if you're still working and you're still door knocking, you're still marketing, you're still trying to, and it's just deal after deal after deal, and there's no accumulation of that wealth, there's no value increase. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a job. And I think that's why I've talked to a lot of fix and flippers, a lot of wholesalers, a lot of the good ones end up either going to commercial, like larger multifamily stuff or like commercial industrial use. And the reason is they just start realizing like we need assets. Actually, even the ones that do buy and hold of single family homes and will rent out a single family home or here it's more common to do, to do duplexes. I know people who've done hundred, 150. They, at one time they've owned hundred to 150 individual homes and then they're blowing their brains out. They're like, I, I'm not managing 150 addresses and houses. Like, and they would just sell everything and get into apartment buildings. And so everyone seems to end up in that direction anyway. It seems like you kind of figured out that a little bit sooner. Like, did you mess around at all with like single family homes, like owning them, renting them, or did you go right into apartment buildings? I went straight to apartment buildings for the exact same reason you just said. So I saw, I had, and I have a lot of, I know a ton of guys that are super successful owning single family rentals. And I also know, you know, north of 50% of them end up selling that portfolio to get, if they have a hundred single family homes, you could sell those single family homes and just get a hundred doors under one roof. I mean, we have a hundred unit apartment complex. Like I just want to manage one address, one lawn, one roof. I don't want to manage a hundred, you know, a hundred different tenants. And, you know, with a, with regards to like owning assets, if you have a single family house and it's rented out and that tenant stops paying rent, that asset becomes a liability. If I have a hundred unit apartment complex and one tenant stops paying rent, I got 99 others that are still paying the rent, you know? So it's just economies of scale in apartments. And I think that's why everybody ends up going there. You can definitely win with single families for sure. You, you can, but each one I believe is, you know, a little base hit where, you know, if you, if you can find a really good apartment complex, you know, it can be a, it can be a grand slam for you. Yeah. That, that's awesome. And like, that's the direction we're trying to move to. So I'm really interested now in your insight when we come to that. So you got into commercial, uh, you decided to go into apartment buildings. Let's talk about that. Where was the first deal? How did you find this deal? Um, and do you still have the deal? It's my other important question. 
Good question. Uh, my first deal was a little 14 unit apartment complex, still own it. We've refinanced it twice. Um, we pulled out over $300,000 tax-free because it, it's loan proceeds, which again, the power of real estate. We did a cost segregation study, took the depreciation all in year one. So we got a write-off for our taxes and it cash flows uh, net, net of everything, like two or 3000 bucks a month. Um, and it's just a really, really okay. awesome deal. Uh, found it direct to seller, um, bought it uh, below appraised value and uh, just a, just a smoking deal. And then got a little confidence and the next one was a 21 and then a 27 and a 49 and 65 and then started scaling up to bigger stuff with, you know, utilizing other people's money. Um, but yeah, the first, the first one was a, a little 14 unit and I just, I bought it with two friends. We just pulled our money together and we just went 33, 33, 33 on it. And um, you know, it's, it's nice to have, I, I have different partners on every single one of my apartment complexes. There's not a single deal that I own completely by myself because you know, you, you can leverage partners with these things and uh, scale a little bit faster. Definitely. And do you still have those deals today? Uh, we've exited a, we, we've exited a lot of stuff in the last 12 months. Yes. Uh, the market is, I think the market's a little inflated. In I my, think we have to get into that after too, and, and we'll get to that. But no, sure. that, that's awesome. So yeah, yes, you we, still own, we still own a lot of stuff. I mean, we have, right. like I'm looking at my board, probably 400 units after the next yeah. one. Um, but we should be a little more picky to what you hold and what you don't now. And we're very like our criteria for buying right now has like, we've really tightened up because interest rates are just rose. They're probably about to rise again. And cap rates have been really suppressed the last couple of years and they're about to, you know, take a little turn. I think a little bit of a dip is coming. So we're liquidating some stuff, staying, staying pretty cash heavy and getting ready to, uh, to purchase some more stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And so when you found those first, um, those first, deals you mentioned they were direct to seller were you leveraging a lot of the same tactics you were using to find individual kind of like you know fix and flip properties or did you start doing something else to generate those leads like how were you were you door knocking was it marketing like how'd you get in front of those i would say we were leveraging the same channels but with different marketing so um to let your listeners a little bit behind the curtain commercial real estate you're not going to find any much distress like there's no these are sophisticated investors own these properties. Um, so it's not like the single family world where, you know, there's a divorce and they're fire sailing it, or they're going into foreclosure. Like you get a lot of that in the single family space, you know, where the house is in disrepair, things like that. They don't really exist in commercial. You'll find some motivation. Um, I mean, there's some mom and pop owners that have owned them for 20 plus years and they're ready to retire and they're certainly motivated, but nobody's fire sailing this stuff at 60 cents on the dollar. So, you, you know, you, you, the marketing that is that we put out is designed more towards building a relationship and letting them know who we are and that we're uh, serious buyers, that we have a track record of completed transactions. And that's what the marketing is geared towards. Um, so the channels are the same. You know, we still hit them with some mail, some text blasts, some email campaigns. We do some cold calling. Um, so the, the same channels are effective to get in front of these people. It's just the messaging is a little bit different, if that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, cause it's a whole different situation. Like you said, they're definitely sophisticated investors. They know what they're doing. It's less likely they're going to have urgency, but I mean, it does happen, I guess. Um, I've seen some people get some decent commercial properties on more of the office space side where there'll be a, a split up with partners or a split up with investors and suddenly things come up. But um, outside of that, I guess it's a little trickier. 
So are you still getting like really fire, like off market rates? Or are you pretty much paying market rates and refining the deals? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to grab them sometimes, you know, 10, 15% below appraisal sometimes um, if we get lucky, but we're leveraging a lot of owner finance. Uh, we're getting some owner financing on some, some deals right now. We have two properties that are closing uh, this quarter that are owner finance. Nice. Um, which again, goes back to your ability to ask great questions and find out what the solution is that they're looking for. You know, if you can buy seller financing deals, excuse me, we've had a couple of really, really solid owner finance deals. You don't have to go to the bank to get an approval. You don't have to go get guarantors and balance sheet partners to sign on your debt because the owner is leveraging their equity as the debt on the property. Um, so those are, that's a really cool way to, to buy real estate right now especially in an inflated market um, when lending is uh, a little bit, it's going to tighten up here soon. Uh, I would recommend learning how to structure creative offers uh, with, with owners. I don't even know what your question was. That was kind of a tangent, but I would definitely recommend. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And I know I love owner financing. I mean, it's something we do here as well. Yeah. Um, even in this market and it works out. And sometimes depending what you're buying, like another, uh, business partner slash friend of mine, he just bought a multifamily near Toronto. I think it's 40 unit, but mm -hmm. the owner was a lot older. Like he was in his seventies yep. and it was the only property he owned and he was retiring. He was slowing down. He's moving back to Italy and he was in no urgent need of a big payout. He just mm -hmm. wanted someone that would take care of the property that would do it right. That would take care of the tenants. That was his main concern with people he built a relationship with. And he was willing to offer owner financing to a buyer that looked passionate, that looked energetic, that looked like they would do the deal right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's the motivation. And if you can get that, I mean, that's, man, that that's a win-win. And I think more owners are willing to do that than people realize it. They try to think like, who'd want to finance their own property? Like someone's going to want to sell, they want to get out. But that's obviously yeah. not always the case. I guess you've seen the same thing as well, right? Well, number one, it's, there's two things I'll say to that. I have an email in my inbox that from an owner that in that exact same situation that emailed me and said, Hey, I know that I could get more if I took it to market, but I have a feeling you're going to take care of this property and you're going to take care of my tenants. And a little, he said, quote, a little concession on my end uh, will help take care of my people. I'm good with that. So he took, you know, probably a 150 to $200,000 haircut on what he could get on the market to give it to me because of that exact reason. Um, and I was gonna, I was gonna say something else. What was the last part of your question? Um, my last part of my question was, I don't remember. You just made, yeah. I saw, I saw you go blank, then I went blank as you went blank. <laughs> no, it's just, I just wiped my memory. I love, I love the the seller financing as a tool to yeah. to get these properties. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's a great hundred percent, hundred percent, man. So what's the, what's the plan now? So you're, you're where you're at. You're like around the 400 unit mark, which is massive. Um, you know, we just, let's dig in because we just touched on the whole, like the market could be changing, things are shifting. So what is the plan for Titan Capital Group kind of as you go forward now in this changing market? What are you guys looking at? What are you looking to get into? What's the future of this company? Oh, that's a great question. The future of the, so we're, we're buying commercial real estate right now. I mean, I, I don't want you to think I'm, I'm some doomsday, like this is the bad asset. Everybody get out, like pull your money and sit on the sidelines and wait for the crash. The best time to buy real estate is always now. It was actually yesterday, but the second best time is now. So it doesn't matter where we're at in the market cycle. The best time to buy is now if you know how to buy good deals. Um, so, you know, we're coming into a little bit of a recession, but you can still buy great deals as long as you plan and coordinate your debt. So the, the interest rates and the terms that you're getting on the debt side of your building and you plan that 
along with where we're at in the market cycle to, to carry you through um, with, to your exit. So when I buy a property, I always think, when am I going to exit? How am I going to exit? Is this a five-year hold, seven-year hold? Are we 18-month flip? Are we getting out of this thing in a year? Are we 10-year hold? What are we doing? So, And I pair that exit strategy up with the debt. So I'm not going to plan a 10-year hold and get three-year bridge debt. I'm going to try and get 10-year plus term. And I pair that up with where we're at in the market cycle to be able to buy and know that I can cash flow through a potential trough, which is what I believe we're going to come into as a little bit of a recession. And the other thing too is, you know, we're not buying any crazy, uh, you know, like heavy, heavy value add deals. We, we did buy a motel in Nashville that we're turning into short-term rentals um, and that one completely gutted, but that's a short-term rental, a little bit separate uh, deal. What I would caution your listeners to is in this volatile market state that we're at, you do not want to buy anything that is like this 18 month refi type scenario or 24 month refi that everybody was doing back in 2017 and 2018. That Burr method was really, really popular. Like buy it, refinance 18 months later. Like if you try and do that now, you, you can do it if you buy it really right, but you may be coming into a refinance at a five, 6% interest rate, which if you're not underwriting to that interest rate could really bite you. And then your cash flow maybe can't sustain on that DSCR and you could potentially be in the red for a few years. And that could put you really behind the eight ball. So it's a long-winded way to answer your question of we're still buying commercial real estate. Uh, we're just really tightening up our underwriting. Um, I'm underwriting worst case scenarios. I'm underwriting you know, heavy vacancy. If God forbid something like COVID again happens, uh, I'm underwriting higher interest rate um, on my mortgages, things like that. And if the deal's still pencil, then we do the deal. Now, we're not I'm not just, I'm not scared to buy real estate right now. I'm just cautious uh, because there's a little bit of buyer euphoria going around and prices are really inflated. Uh, buyers are paying crazy amounts of money out of California and New York because they're just trying to hedge their money against, you know, inflation and, and preserve their capital. So we're not like overpaying for stuff uh, right now. We're being very diligent with our buys, but exactly. yeah. That's a, and how are you finding like the, the, the sellers are receiving that? Because we're in, a, we're in that tricky situation where they're seeing all this craziness. And of course, in their mind, that's what they want. They think, hey, the market's crazy. I want to sell top dollar. And then here you are coming in, you're underwriting it with all these kind of future things in mind that are going to bring that value potentially down. And they have to understand that. Do you find people are receptive to that? Or they're kind of like, whoa, what do you mean? This is peak market. I want top dollar. They're receptive if you can explain it. Like if you can, and you, if they're an investor and they're a savvy investor, they have to be able to, just as you're putting yourself in their shoes, they have to put yourself in, they have to put themselves in your shoes. Like this is where this, they, not only are they savvy, they understand buyer euphoria, they also understand the inflation that's going on and the, all the other factors that are, they're factoring into where my offer is. And they should understand that. So if I can sit down and explain, Hey, listen, you know, I understand that I'm, I might be 10% below kind of what you thought on the market, but here's why, you know, interest rates are rising. I have uh, material costs. So repairs and maintenance line item is going to be more expensive than it has been for you in the past couple of years. I have uh, these increased costs, you know, my payroll costs are going up to keep up with inflation. Everything else is going to rise up on my expenses side. And, and if you can logically make them understand why your offer is where it is, that's a lot of times where, you know, they'll, they'll go with you um, yeah. rather than going a different direction. That's a great point. Now, yeah. outside of this on the real estate end, you mentioned you guys are also dabbling a little bit in crypto and all this. Do you want to kind of touch on what's going on there? Oh, I mean, I do I want to touch on what's going on in crypto? Yeah, like what are you guys doing with crypto? What's what's your thoughts on the whole crypto deal? What opportunities are you guys seeing? Is it an investment that we should all be thinking about? Is it something the average person needs to stay away from? Like, 
what are, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, you should definitely be thinking about it. It should be on your radar. Um, my experience with my, if anybody has learned anything in the past 24 months, it says the dollar is faker than it has ever been. And if the dollar is, is got very, very little intrinsic value. And if anybody's stacking any money, like you should be investing in yourself, you should be investing in your businesses and you should be investing in assets. And I believe personally, it's just my opinion that cryptocurrency is a, a good storage of, of wealth. I, I kind of look at it as a little bit of like a savings account. I'm not getting into cryptocurrency to make like crazy returns on my money. Um, I'm not actively trading, but I am actively utilizing it as a storage of wealth. I do think that uh, blockchain technology is going to have its place in real estate transactions. And I think it's going to, uh, we've already seen um, the, the technology that's, for instance, Ethereum is built on, um, or a lot of the, the things run on the Ethereum blockchain. We've, we've seen that start to make its way into the marketplace. And I believe that it's, it's going to have a place. Um, I haven't delved into the, the NFT space. Um, I can't really wrap my head around that one quite yet. Uh, but, you know, as far as cryptocurrencies go, I, I would definitely recommend, you know, don't mortgage your house to, to buy Ethereum, but you should be dollar cost averaging yourself in and buying a little bit, maybe every week or every month, whatever you can afford to, you know, buy without having to worry about it. Um, don't put your last $10,000 in it, but I would be putting a little bit of, of money in there. I think it's going to, I think it's going to continue to go up. Right. And I mean, if I were to play devil's advocate, I'm going to throw you some of the things that I've heard from concerns from kind of investors and business owners. Um, are you worried at all about government regulation where they could step in at some point and do something like what China's done where all of a sudden they're closing out all, I mean, obviously you can keep things in cold storage or in hard wallets, but for the average person, let's just say they start closing out all the exchanges, they ban certain trades, they ban certain platforms, um, they ban certain wallets that are online, um, and they just say, no, 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 no one's touching it, you're not allowed to, all that Bitcoin you've stacked, you can't use it here. You can't trade it, you can't put it on exchange, you can't sell it, at least through an exchange, unless you want to do it somehow privately. Um, you know, is, is that a risk? Is that something you think about? <clears throat> yeah, of course. I'm going to follow up your question with a question. What happens when the government goes too far as an extent as to freeze your bank accounts because you don't go along with the guidelines that they- Oh, our they, country does that. Canada does that. It's great. No, that's why I'm asking you. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you talk about government overreach, like it's happening right now. You talk about, we could go down some rabbit holes. I mean, you know, you talk about the risk, the inherent risk of owning cryptocurrency because the government can shut it down. What happens when the government turns your lights off and then, yeah. and then they won't turn them back on until you get a digital ID and- yeah kind of bend your knee. I mean, they could do a lot of stuff. We have the illusion of freedom right yeah. now. We're not free people. We have the illusion of freedom. You guys we are doing a lot better than Canada is, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I agree. That's a whole other rabbit hole, man. But I mean, that you guys are, um, it's, it's a valid point because we saw that stuff like when we had that rally here, the freedom rally, they tried to make it look like it was some like evil movement, which it was not. And it definitely, they were trying to say it's like a fringe and all of a sudden they started like freezing bank accounts they're still yeah. like our prime minister, instead of doing anything else he's supposed to be doing is spending his time still trying to track down everybody that attended these protests to find them, jail them, freeze their assets. That's still their primary focus here because they went to a completely peaceful rally in which the only people that got hurt were people that got hurt by the police or the government. Um, and so I can definitely see them doing that in a lot of areas. Um, so that's a, that's a very valid point. The question is how do we protect 
against it? Do we just say, well, it could happen anywhere, so we'll just do everything until it happens? Or are there ways that we can actively like protect ourselves from that that you've thought about? Yeah, that's that's a phenomenal question. And the the answer that I have, again, this is just my opinion. So everybody has different opinions about what's going on in the world. My my personal opinion is that you should get to a place where you don't need anybody for anything. You should get to a place where you you are ungovernable, meaning I, I don't need anything from the external world to live my life. And, and I believe that everybody should be working towards that goal. So for me, you know, this whole conversation started in real estate, like owning shelter and owning where people need to live. I don't care if someone pays me in cash, someone pays me in crypto. I own shelter that people are going to need to live in. And that's why that is the most secure investment for me, because whatever happens in the world, and the world is a stage. And what is being shown to you is being shown to you intentionally. So if you're looking at that little rectangle on your wall, there's a reason there's every headline is on that rectangle. There's a reason they're showing it to you. So if the world is a stage, you just need to be prepared in your own home and have your house in order. And I don't think enough people right now have their own house in order. Right. Their, their own financial, personal financial statement. Right. They don't have enough hard assets. Um, you know, and there's an array of hard assets that you can be investing in. They don't have um, th those types of things in order to not need anybody for anything. And that's yeah. a dangerous place to be when you need, uh, you're reliant. Cause if you're reliant on somebody else, AKA the government, they can capitalize on that reliance. And right now I would say 95% of the population is reliant. Um, exactly. that's a dangerous place to be because as we've seen with your prime minister, you know, the wrong people can get into the right seat and yeah. if the wrong people get in the right seat. Uh, there's not much anybody can do about it. And right now, unless they took it to some extreme measures that, you know, that's about it. Which might be, which might be where, where we're heading. It, it's a weird thing. It's a very weird thing because, and you know what, like at first I did notice you guys are in a lot better position than, than we were down there. Um, and there's more opportunity because here it's, it's difficult to find out how to still be in Canada and remain ungovernable because of how much control they take like it wouldn't surprise me to see them stealing assets or seizing buildings or stealing housing yep. with the socialist policies that they roll out and so the only way that i found to potentially protect myself too has been like location independence where not only having one passport listen right now a lot of people in canada can't even travel anyway you can't even get out of the country you can't even get on a plane you can't drive across the border you can't get on a train in certain mm -hmm. circumstances if you're not vaccinated or you don't have things like this so that still even hurts my strategy in some cases. But the only thing that I figured out is like, and I think this started about two years ago for me, is I started getting passports or visas in other countries, including the US, just in case. Um, but outside of that, so South America, Europe, um, to give myself alternatives where I can open bank accounts in different places, in different countries, um, and have the opportunity to do business. Because even if they close borders, there's always somebody for some amount of money or gold or something else that will take you on a plane and fly you somewhere. There's always a way to get out of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, cartels have been doing it for years. There's always ways to get things across borders. Yeah. Um, that won't change. I think what's important is not having all your eggs in one basket from a country standpoint. I think it might be smart to say, if where I live were to go to complete shit, where's a place I can go to get out? Where's a place I can still do business? Where's a place that I can still thrive and invest? And maybe having mild preparations and not where you're like stopping your life and doing that, but having those little seeds planted that if you needed to up and leave with your family or your assets, you could find a way to do that. You wouldn't be scrambling last minute to figure that out um, because then you have options. You know, my government goes to shit and no problem. I'll hop over here and I'm going to start operating in this location. How do you feel about all that? I've talked to my wife about that. You know, we, we've said, hey, if, if, if this, if this keeps going, if it goes down one of the paths, so um, 
America in particular is that I believe a crossroads there's a, and there's a few different paths that this country can go down at this point. And what time will tell which one it, it goes. Canada's in the same way. The, the whole world is really kind of at a crossroads and it's because there's a globalist agenda that's trying to be put into play and the countries are either deciding whether or not they're going to be a part of this global agenda. Uh, Joe Biden said it called it the new world order the other day. So it, there's actually yeah. a real thing, right? Um, so countries are deciding whether or not what, what path they're going to take. And I've talked to my wife about it to, to your point, like if, if, if America loses its soul, which is, you know, the, the constitution, which is the soul of America, like we'll, we'll go, we'll go wherever they need entrepreneurs. Cause yeah, there's, there's countries in Europe that are opening back up. They're going to be free and they're going to need entrepreneurs. And I'm not, you know, I love, I want to be a part of the change here locally. Um, but also to that, to, to some extent, the power is so deep and so, I don't want to use the word corrupt, but it, it it's so deep that the, the two-party system, the way it is, and the government, the way it's set up is almost too big to change. It, it's, it's, it's like, we don't need a, we don't need a Republican or a Democrat in that office. We need an American. Like we need a, a somebody who's on the edge of the coin, riding right up the middle that can just make decisions for the American people for the benefit of the country. Right. And every country needs that. And they're just not getting it because the world economic forum has put in leaders that are about this global agenda and this new world order. And it's a very dangerous place for free thinking individuals like myself and yourself who really just want to be left alone. Like I'm, I'm a libertarian by nature. I'm fiscally conservative, socially liberal. I don't, I just don't, you can do whatever you want. You can call yourself whatever you want. You can identify as whatever you want. Just don't put that on me. And then just don't touch my money and don't touch my guns and we'll be fine. Um, exactly. and we can live our lives. Exactly. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I love that. I love that. No, you, you think exactly like I think. And the one thing I envy about you is your gun laws. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's kept you guys free for so long and why you're not in the same position as Canada mm -hmm. uh, is because when we throw large protests, people show up with like campers and hockey sticks. It doesn't go very far. So the government's not very scared. But when you guys throw large scale protests, there's a lot more capacity for you guys to do um, you know, some really threatening things that would make them question. I think they think twice. I think your government's a little more prone to like, do we want to do this? Do we want 30,000 armed people in our capital? <laughs> or maybe we should do this a little slower. And I think that's where they're at. They're trying to go in the same direction. They're just taking a little more time because yep. they fear that second amendment. They fear that ability. Like if people get mad enough, they can actually do something. Mind you, like I make the most of what we have here. Like we do yep. have decent gun laws by your standards. They're terrible. But by the world standards, they're decent. I do as much as I can with what I have, but it's it's not enough and it's not as widespread in the culture as it is where you guys are. Um, and I regret that. And that's why I fear Canada falling faster. And that's why I got a US visa because I'm like, you guys are in the same boat, kind of going the same direction, but I think you have more time, even if it's just a few years more. I don't think it's falling as fast, but there still have to be a, a solution to get out of that and go somewhere else. And there are all kinds of places in the world that are opening up that are, like you said, looking for entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. that are valuing that, that are looking for innovation. There's, there's places that will pay you to bring your company there and do business. Um, and that, that's a real thing. So that's just something that I think everyone needs to be looking at because a lot of smart people are saying what me and you are just saying now. Like this isn't like some, our government tells us it's like a fringe minority, but it's not. It's like anyone I talk to that's successful, that has a family, that is doing business, that makes money, they're thinking the same exact way. So it's obviously not a coincidence. I think it's something that we need to talk about more. Um, if we want to be successful, because I think you were right, like it's gone really far. 
one of the options is going to be, yeah, there might be a way to fix all this, but it's not going to be like we all wake up and shake hands. I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's got to get worse and things have to break before they're going to come back any different because it's too deep now. It's too deeply entrenched. So the question is, do you want to live here through that transition? Do you want to live through that conflict and that change? Or do you want to get out where you can keep prospering, keep doing your thing and maybe one day come back? And that's yeah. kind of how I'm looking at it. Yeah, I, I would agree on all accounts. And it, it's not 30,000 30, Patriots. It's probably 30 million Patriots. Million. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I think you're, everything you said about America is spot on. And, you know, to, to, the person, to the person listening who has, we've transitioned now from success in real estate to uh, what are you going to do about the- <laughs> It's all good. It, you it's know, all it's tied all together. Applicable. It's all applicable. Everything that we're talking about is relatable to the other thing. So the reason we're talking about freedom right now is because- we can't buy real estate if freedom doesn't exist. Right. The reason we're talking about and having this conversation is because none of what we talked about in the first 30 minutes matters if what we're talking about right now doesn't go our way. So it's really important. It's a conversation that a lot, not a lot of people are having. And the reason they're not having it is because the media has labeled us the way we're thinking, the silent majority. And they're very intentional with their language, with the term silent, because they want you to think that you shouldn't be talking about what they're, they call you the silent majority. Most people I talk to believe the same things that I'm talking about. We just are deemed the silent majority and people stay quiet. Yeah. Um, that was intentional. So I think yeah. they're doing a great job. A great, they're doing a fantastic, it, it's a phenomenal time to be alive. If you're an unbiased, objective, free thinking individual, because to watch the manipulation and just watch. It's wild. A few, a few individuals can control massive, massive amounts of, intelligence, media, narratives, Hollywood, uh, industries, companies, pharmaceutical companies, they can control all of this and just like manipulate data information and push it through channels and have people, it's, it's incredible to watch. Um, it's, 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 and, and the other thing too is the, the way I'll kind of, I'll wrap up my end is if you're, if you're thinking about this, do not just immediately throw your hands up and say, well, I'm just going to give up then because the world's going to break and go to shit. You need to go ahead and you should be acting in urgency. You should be very, very urgent with becoming successful, starting your business. If you're not an entrepreneur, I would recommend having some sort of business for yourself and be urgent about it. If you're getting into real estate, get in and go like, don't buy bad deals, but buy something like get in and move because you need to go ahead and create wealth, passive income for yourself now while the game is still being able to be played because we're all still playing the game. Um, and you need to create and amass as much wealth as you can, because if the system does break, you're going to need some reserves and you're going to need some stuff um, that can carry you through and that you can come out in round two or three or wherever it goes um, with, you know, something to stand with. Exactly. And I think it was an important note you were kind of alluding to earlier about like why we're talking about this. But, you know, you mentioned you got into real estate because, yeah, you, you always had an interest in money. You had an interest in making money, in being successful and all these things around our freedoms that are going on right now will impact that. Like we got into this game to make money, right? The game of business, the game of investing. And if things are changing in a way that we can't make money, it's a valid point that we need to put just as much effort on ensuring we can keep making money. We can keep being successful because that's the reason we got into this game. So thinking about this and having these conversations, I think is critical, critical because that's what we're, we're here to do. And so that's just become part of our reality and our generation that we have to deal with. And to me, it's like, just as a no brainer, thinking about your accounting or thinking about your legal or thinking about your operations, 
now you got to think about your, your freedom. Can you keep doing business the way you're doing business? Do you need another spot? Do you need another location? Do you have to move? Like, what does that look like? It's something we all need to start thinking about. Um, because usually when it actually pops up, it's too late. Like once it happens, if you've not thought about it, if you've not planned anything, it's really hard to do it on the fly. Like, um, I wish I saw this years in advance because then I could get out of the country a lot easier. I could have moved a lot easier. Um, now it's getting harder and harder by the day to do that. So I think if no, if you're listening to this and you haven't thought about that, I think this is the time to think about it. Um, especially in real estate, because I think in every large kind of recessionary event and change of world order and government switchovers, um, there's been a lot of targets in the back of landowners. And this goes back to the Soviet Union and the whole transition there. Landowners have been a target. Um, and so making sure you're, you're free, making sure you're able to move quickly, making sure you have other alternatives. Um, they tend to pin the richest landowners as evil and they start taxing them. They like Canada's talking about wealth taxes. They're talking about primary residence taxes now. If your house is worth over a million dollars, a flat tax that accumulates every year that's due on your death or on your sale. Just on top of everything else, we already pay property tax, we already pay income tax. So you see they're already trying to target that real estate market here. And I'm sure you're going to see that in other places as well. So becoming aware of that, adjusting, preparing for that, moving things around so you can be successful. I think that's going to be key. Agree. I agree on all fronts. Good stuff, man. Well, I, I love it. This is, I mean, I wish I had two hours. I know we don't, so I'll be respectful of your time. But where can people connect with you if they want to connect and they want to chat and follow along with your journey? Yeah. So um, if, if you like my tinfoil hat theories, you can find me on Facebook at Chad King or on Instagram at Mr. Chad King. I'm just kidding about the tinfoil hat. The only difference between truth and a conspiracy theorist nowadays is six months time. But yeah, yeah. you can catch me um, on either one of those sites. Um, I, I'm pretty, I, I put out a lot of free content about commercial real estate. I have a, a mastermind, seven figure multifamily. If you wanted more information, that's sevenfiguremultifamily.com with the number seven. That's, we teach people how to buy commercial real estate. Um, and yeah, just connect with me on, on socials and I'm, I'm pretty active on there. And uh, that's it. Good stuff, man. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I really, really enjoyed it. We'll definitely keep in touch anyway. Um, yeah. Seems like we have a lot of similar beliefs and thoughts, but I appreciate the time. It was a pleasure. It was an awesome conversation, Darren. Thanks for having me. Awesome, man. I'll talk to you soon.